In the coastal town of Noraville, New South Wales, Australia, lies Jenny Dixon Beach, an area with a past that involves numerous murders and many ships that have been lost at sea. It's considered one of the most haunted towns in Australia. Stories of ghost sightings and apparitions, while maybe local lore, there lies the truth in the stories told. From a woman searching for her lost son, to a hitchhiker on the nearby highway, and then the home sisters who were tragically murdered in 1950. All are believed to haunt this coastal town. If that's not enough to send chills up your spine and avoid visiting Jenny Dixon Beach, then let's begin the journey of how each of these chilling, ghostly narratives began. If you like your stories full of intrigue, whodunit, and unexplained true horror, then you made it. True Horror Podcast is all that. Pull up your bed covers, turn off the light, and get ready to hear the bizarre, the mortifying, and supernatural tales where you decide if there's truth in what you hear. Like all good ghost stories, the story of Jenny Dixon is one part historic truth and one part local legend. It's understood to be a combination of events that occurred between Magenta and Noraville over a century ago. In 1870, a coal schooner named Janet Dixon became stuck in a storm just off the coast of Noraville. The Noraville lighthouse did not yet exist, and so without guidance, the ship became wrecked on the shoreline. Over time, the name of the ship was mistakenly changed to Jenny Dixon in the community memory and has since stayed. All of the occupants on board the Janet Dixon did survive, but were severely shaken. Over the centuries, many ships have been lost along the Nora Head coastline, and altogether it's believed 15 deaths occurred along the beach. One of the deaths was the young son of a woman who managed to survive the shipwreck. She is said to be the ghost of Jenny Dixon. The Jenny Dixon Beach ghost is said to appear with her arms outstretched, beckoning for help. The Nora Head Lighthouse, which was built in 1901, is now said to be haunted with the memory of all of those who have been lost along Jenny Dixon Beach. It was a hot summer day in 1973 when a group of four 12-year-old boys camped at Jenny Dixon Beach for the night. It was typical to spend as many hours outdoors as they could and camping was just one of the things that they did every other weekend together. Customary as it was, spending the night around the campfire was still one of each of their favourite pastimes and one they always looked forward to. The boys would talk of memories they shared and wishful dreams of what they could do next. The boys had been best friends since starting school together and they'd known each other more than half their lives. Noah was one of those kids that took adventure seriously. He had no fear and his mates respected him for that. Will, his best friend, led the group in every other way. He was the one to make these trips happen and everyone appreciated him for that. While the boys ate their dinner that had mostly been prepared by Lucas, they plotted out their hiking path for the following day. 
Henry, though, drew back on his inhaler and nervously glanced at his friends. Don't worry, Henry, we got ya. Noah patted him on the back, making poor Henry almost choke. As the boys prepared for bed, Noah heard something brush past the trees in the scrub near them. He went to investigate, but before he could turn his torch on, he saw something standing between the beach and the bush. Holy crap, Rule said as he turned to see what Noah was motionless over. The other two boys, Henry and Lucas, were delayed with their response. It was as if everything was in slow-mo. Each one of them now saw the same thing. It was a young woman wearing a white dress, the kind of white dress women wore in the 1800s. She had her arms outstretched towards the boys as if she was pleading for them to help her. Being 12-year-olds, the boys threw sticks at her, but the sticks went straight through her. Henry and Lucas ran as quickly as they could towards the car park. Noah was still transfixed though, and he felt nothing, as if time had suspended him. And he knew he was scared, but he couldn't move. Will tugged at his best friend's shirt. Come on, let's go! Will pleaded to his friend as the gap between the woman and Noah became closer. But Noah was mesmerized and unable to comprehend what they were seeing was not of this world. The woman was muttering something to herself and against his better judgment, Noah broke free from Will's grip and started walking towards the woman. She outstretched her arms and Will was scared she was going to take Noah and pull him into some kind of alternate reality. Noah! Will screamed at his friend, demanding him to follow him up the stairs. Will glanced to see if the other boys were still there and able to help Noah, but they were long gone. Will was stuck between wanting to leap up those stairs to freedom and be with his friends or helping his other friend. He was losing his nerve though and he started to move away. Come on, Noah, we gotta go. Instead of waking up from his trance, Noah allowed the woman to move even closer to him. Still with outstretched arms and murmuring, almost crying it seemed like to Noah. She's looking for something. Or someone, Noah said this more to himself than to his friend. Noah edged forward trying to help the woman. Her extended arms almost touching him. That was enough for Will. He ran to his friend, dragged him back, then grabbed Noah by the shoulders and shook him. I don't know what the hell that is, but we're not staying to find out. As if he'd been unconscious, Noah suddenly woke up and realizing what he was seeing, he too became panicked. Both of them ran towards the stairs, jumping on every second or third step as quickly as they could get to the top, never turning back. When they reached safely, they did turn around and the woman was halfway up the stairs, her arms still reaching out to them. Below at the remaining campsite, everything was as they'd left it, and the boys never returned to collect their gear. What they'd experienced was not a story that would bond them together like many others, but rather one that they could never speak of again.
Over the past four decades, rumours have circulated intermittently about ghostly appearances in the vicinity of Norahead Cemetery, Jenny Dixon Beach, and a section of Wilfred Barrett Drive on the New South Wales Central Coast in Australia. One story set in the 1970s tells of a teenage girl heading home from work when she was pulled into a car and viciously attacked and raped by five youths. She was later found barely alive in bushland at Jenny Dixon Beach, but she died as a result of her injuries. On her deathbed, she told her father she wouldn't rest until her attackers were found and punished. Police never charged anyone with the crime, but five youths who were frequently in each other's company died under bizarre circumstances during the following years. The first ghostly appearance was reported not far from Nora Head Cemetery shortly after the girl's burial. Within weeks, sightings of the girl had increased and after each event, her grave was disturbed. A short time later, a young man suspected of being involved in the girl's death hung himself after complaining of being continuously harassed by a spirit. The same year, his friend and some believe accomplice was fatally injured in a car accident. Before he passed away, he claimed someone had walked in front of his vehicle, but witnesses saw no one. The third member of the group to die in mysterious circumstances drove his car off a cliff after confessing that an apparition had been torturing him. The bizarre scenario continued when a fourth youth picked up a hitchhiker on Wilford Barrett Drive. By the time he had reached Noraville Road, the girl had disappeared. He reported the incident, but was cruelly ridiculed and soon began showing signs of madness. He later ran his car over an embankment on the Pacific Highway and died. A similar scenario was in store for the final victim. He had complained to his sister of being constantly haunted. He later left the district to work for a circus in an effort to escape the torment, but it followed him. He often told of seeing things day and night and later ended the nightmare by taking his own life with a shotgun. The ghostly story made headlines again when a visiting doctor picked up a hitchhiker on Wilfred Barrett Drive while holidaying in the area. He knew nothing of the local legend. He later told police the hitchhiker disappeared as he approached Noraville Road. The distraught physician later sought psychiatric counselling. Today, stories of the mysterious spirit still circulate throughout the Central Coast. And not so long ago, two police officers told of picking up a hitchhiker on Wilfred Barrett Drive during the early hours of the morning. Again, the young female had disappeared upon reaching Nora Head Cemetery. This was not the first time of police reports, and in fact, there are over 300 police reports detailing of the same spirit and similar circumstances. One resident from the Central Coast vividly recalls picking the girl up on Wilfred Barrett Drive over 40 years ago. He was actually talking to her in his car and after receiving no response, glanced into the back seat and she was gone. It's well known among locals in the area that the girl was kidnapped on that stretch of road and then raped and left for dead in the bushland at Jenny Dixon Beach. The stories are all too similar to be made up and every story always states that she strolls along Wilford Barrett Drive 
possibly in search of her killers, but always disappears near Nora Head Cemetery. Another strange twist to the story is that she always sits in the rear of the vehicle, never the front, and after she vanishes there is often a lit cigarette on the back seat. The girl's murder still remains unsolved. It is also widely believed there is still one person connected to the crime who managed to escape the young girl's wrath by fleeing the area. Perhaps this is the person she continuously seeks. Jake, a local to the Central Coast who lives at North Entrance and is literally five minutes away from Wilford Barrett Drive. He was at work one day and was eating his lunch in the break room when he overheard some of his co-workers talking about the Wilford Barrett ghost, or Jasmine Taylor as locals refer to her. Each were telling of unusual things that had occurred along the road. It reminded him of his own unsettling account that he had never shared with anyone until now. He was heading from the entrance one night towards Nora Head. It was really late after midnight and he was driving along when he saw a young girl who at first he thought was a teenager standing on the side of the road. He pulled over to see if she was okay. She asked if she could get a lift and persisted in sitting in the back seat. He asked her what she was doing out on such a dangerous road in the late hours of the night. She replied to him, I know how dangerous this road is, but I have to walk this road. It's the only way. He looked inquisitively back through the mirror and saw her staring at the side of the road. He asked her again if she was okay, and this time she looked directly in his eyes and said, I'll be okay once I find him. Her eyes diverted again to the side of the road and her sinister laugh sent chills up Jake's spine. As he drove up near the cemetery, she said, If only I had had someone who picked me up that night like you. Thank you. He looked in the mirror and she was gone. He stopped the car confused by what had just happened and what he'd just seen. He got out of the car and looked on the back seat and saw a buttered cigarette just laying there. Nothing made sense, especially after getting back in his car and finding the air in the car was chillingly cold. Jake knew of the ghost myth and had never believed it until that night. It was so out of this world that he convinced himself it was not true, yet every time he travelled that same stretch of road he was reminded of it. He still often passes the cemetery and even once found her gravesite. He laid one single flower by the headstone, forever thankful that she didn't continue to haunt him. On the opposite side of Tukli is Canton Beach, where in 1950 two sisters would be brutally murdered in a swampy area at Tugra Lakes. At approximately 1.30pm on the 29th of August 1950, the sisters left their home and went for a walk. And while the girls always came home to help with dinner, they failed to show up. And by 5.30pm that day, their family and some friends would start searching for them. It wasn't until 1.30am the following day that they decided to notify police. 
Fred Jackson, a friend of the family, led one of the search parties and helped the family look for the girls around their home and headed north, while Sergeant Kempton led the search party that would go south. Witnesses were placed at the scene momentarily, and in particular would be the Massey brothers, who would later help identify a person of interest to the case. The boys told police that they had helped the two girls across the creek before heading in the opposite direction, but then came across William Bertel, stopped for a moment, chatted with him, and he ended up going south in the direction where the girls were headed. Two detectives made the very grisly find after following three sets of footprints around the largest of the Tugra Lakes area where a lonely swamp was known as the jungle. There they found the bodies of two missing girls lying face down in a few inches of mud and water. They had been dead for 12 hours and so badly were their faces and heads battered that they were barely recognisable. The discovery was made on August 30th, 1950 and it was a tragic end to an overnight search that had mobilised the Wyong community. Grace and Kathleen Holmes, aged 18 and 11, had arrived in the area with their family just weeks earlier. Their parents Clarence and Eleanor Holmes had migrated from England and moved to Tukley to find work. Doug Holmes, who at the time was only 16, was the brother of the two girls and had assisted in the search for his sisters. He said the family had only been living in the home for three weeks when Grace, Kathleen and another friend who lived nearby decided to walk to the lighthouse. At the last minute, the friend dropped out. The family were told that when they found the girls, the police would fire a shot in the air. Later that night, they heard the shot and thought, thank goodness they've got them, only to find out later that they were actually dead. The motive for the killings has never been clear. Police found signs of a desperate struggle near the edge of the swamp. The ground close by was bloodstained and Kathleen's clothing had been torn. Media reports at the time stated police believe Kathleen died first during the attack and her older sister Grace died trying to defend her. After the bodies were dumped in the swamp, an attempt was made to conceal them using palm leaves and bushes. The murder received widespread newspaper and radio coverage, as did the funeral three days later, and the court case of the accused 25-year-old William Bertel, a fisherman of Tukli. Police alleged Mr. Bertel had bashed the girls with a bottle, but the evidence was considered circumstantial, and he was actually acquitted. Mr. Holmes later said the family didn't believe enough had been done with the investigation amid claims more than one killer may have been involved. The tragedy added to a long run of ill luck from the Holmes's family, which began during the war years in England. They had been bombed out of three separate homes close to London during the Blitz and lost many neighbours and friends. They had come to Australia seeking a better life. At the time of the murders, there was a huge outpouring of grief amongst the Tukley residents, who raised more than £200 to pay for the girls' funeral and to help give the family a fresh start. Even the shops in Tukley closed after just one hour's trading and Sergeant's Bus Service provided a free bus from Tukley to the cemetery to carry mourners, including children from the local school where Kathleen had recently enrolled. Almost 50 wreaths covered the girls' coffins. The mother of the girls was so distraught she couldn't even attend the funeral and was supported at home by neighbours. In a final sad twist, the struggling family of the victims could not afford headstones for their girls. 
While the ghost sightings of these two sisters are not as common, many believe that they too haunt the area. In December 1950, William Bertel went to trial for the murder of Kathleen Holmes. It was only 82 minutes in recession when the jury voted him not guilty. Bertel was immediately charged with the second murder of Grace Holmes, 18, and it wasn't until Valentine's Day in 1951 that at the trial, the Crown alleged that Kathleen and her sister Grace had been attacked by a maniac, possibly a sexual maniac, when they were walking along the shore of the Tugra Lakes area, and then they were brutally battered to death. This wasn't entirely true though, and just one of the many rumours circulating at the time of their death. Where it had been believed that an actual sexual predator had escaped a mental institution, but caught again on the same day as the girls' bodies had been found. It was proven that this was not the case. Leading up to the trial, one of the Crown witnesses also committed suicide and their evidence had never been revealed, leaving the family desperate to know more. Police investigations of Bertel had been solely based around an extensive interview of 82 hours where Bertel had at first denied being in the area when the murders took place and that the last time he had been there had been a month prior. Yet the footprints found at the scene resembled those of someone with a deformity on their right foot. Bertel did indeed have such an abnormality. He had a condition known as hematoe, and the impressions left in the sand were a match of those of his own. Next to those footprints also were those later identified as Grace Holmes' sand shoes. The prosecutor went on to use further evidence at the scene that surely linked Bertel to the murders, but unfortunately the jury did not find him guilty on either of the counts of murder, relaying that the evidence was all circumstantial. If what was pieced together by the lead investigator Detective Whalen by the footprint evidence and the witnesses who saw Bertel heading in the direction of the girls, the accused should surely have been in the area at the same time of the murders. Bertel continuously refused to admit he was there, yet when police started to take evidence from his home and question him at the station, Bertel suddenly changed his story and remarked, You got me, then demanded a lawyer. Later, as he awaited trial, his cellmate concealed that Bertel had admitted he did do the murders, but that they were yet to prove it. Unfortunately, the cellmate was not considered a reliable witness. Even though everything pointed to Bertel, all the evidence was considered circumstantial, even the scratches and scabs on his arms. While a broken family would go on to living out their lives not knowing what happened to their daughters or finding the person or persons responsible, William Bertel would continue to live in their town, but a few years later left and there is no evidence of how he continued his life. Some might even suggest that he completely disappeared. The police investigations did not reopen immediately, but the crime was listed with other unsolved murders with a squad of CIB homicide experts who continually review major crimes for which no person has ever been convicted. It is believed the sisters may also haunt Canton Beach, but most relate the ghostly apparitions of Tukli to that of our previous two stories. This area of Tukli is by far one of the most haunted places in Australia. 
There are even other ghost stories surrounding an ambulance station where Ambos dread the night shift and a hotel where a bride who on her wedding night died. And it is said she continuously walks the halls of the hotel. Whether you believe these stories or not, there are too many coincidences and reported sightings that there has to be some truth in what has been seen. Do you dare to travel alone on this stretch of road at night, or any stretch of road that is deserted and dark? Was this true horror story real or not? You know what to do, that five-star review. Or you can swing by YouTube to comment and like. Now if you want to get more personal and scare me with your tales of horrors, take a ride on the wild side and share them on my subreddit, True Horror Podcast. Until next time, remember that sometimes things you see in the shadows are more than just shadows. <laughs>